Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the third episode of The Archers. I'm Katie. I'm Madison. And hello. (laughs) (laughs) We're so happy to be back. This episode, since it is episode three, and we're trying to follow our numerology theme here, Mm -hmm. we're going to be talking about the folklore love triangle and Mm. the three characters, Betty, James, and Augustine, who... yes is kind of nameless but we're all just going to call her Augustine. Um, yes. Yes. I I mean after after hearing Long Pond, after watching Long Pond, I've exclusively referred to her as Augustine. Yeah, and as Jack Antonoff points out, I mean he literally says like I'll never be able to not call her Augustine now. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, I mean that, that says something if he feels that way. <laughs> I know Taylor also said Augustus or Augusta, and I was like, mm, Augusta, right, Augusta. Yeah, that's true. The, the name Augustine is just so pretty. So we're going to unpack kind of the narrative around the love triangle, and then we're also going to get into the drama of Grammygate, which Katie doesn't know a whole lot about. No, I certainly don't. Um, And that was like a big request. A lot of people responded to our question as to what you'd want us to hear about. A lot of people said Grammygate. And I am very excited because I don't know what that is or anything about it. Oh my God, that makes me so excited. So I am going to (laughs) present all of the facts to Katie. Um, I'm going to try to be as unbiased as possible presenting the facts because I really just Mm -hmm. want your true reaction and kind of what you think is going on. So exciting. Um, So that'll be so much fun. Um, and of course, we're talking about Grammygate because folklore won the Grammy and that was when the whole William Bowery writing credit drama happened. So mm-hmm. it fits in with the folklore love triangle. You know what and else yeah. I think it's great that we're doing? Uh, what would you call it? Not the tri- like the Trinity, like the Holy Trinity, the Holy Folklore mm. Trinity. I'm so glad we're doing that today for this episode because you know what clip has been like suddenly going viral on Twitter is the clip of Jack and Taylor talking about William Bowery in long pond sessions. I feel like I've seen that like four times a day every day the past week because uh, people are just talking about how awkward it is. And I have to say, I've only seen long pond once and during oh, that wow. Part, I yeah I know I know great restraint during that part I was kind of like this is so weird why is Jack being so prickly in response to Taylor talking about William Bowery but now seeing the clip a million times isolated like that it makes me so uncomfortable so I can't wait to go into like what your thoughts are about that our resident long pond expert as you are <laughs> I watch it sometimes just to fall asleep. Like I will put it on and I will be asleep by like halfway through it. I don't think I've made it all the way through Long Pond more than twice, but I did pull a bunch of quotes from Long Pond so that we can get Taylor's exact words for Mm. the whole love triangle and William Bowery situation. Jack Antonoff definitely reveals a lot through his body language and his attitude in Long Pond. Uh, I wish that we could show you just like visual clips of how awkward their body language is (laughs) and Taylor's weird like gulping in between every word and (laughs) looking around left and right not making eye contact with anyone and then Aaron like bouncing in the corner out of anxiety sipping his wine in between every word like (laughs) I'm really excited so to me it really all begins with cardigan 
it really seems like from the voice memo that was released that Aaron, you know, talked about, and then it came out, I forget whether it was like just on iTunes or maybe it was just available on her store, but the voice memo for Cardigan made it seem like such a different song in the beginning. That was only how I see it. It was probably only made into a song about a part of the love triangle after the fact. Like, I personally don't think that she wrote Cardigan with the love triangle in mind. So you I think, think that, Cardigan like, came first? Yes. I think Cardigan came first and then it transitions to a song that she really wrote more from her perspective into a song that uh, is like from a teenage girl's perspective or was written with a certain scenario in mind of the love triangle. But the original voice memo, I don't think that that's what she was going for. I, I talked about in the last episode how Cardigan seem to kind of like pull the whole story together without really giving like mm-hmm. a whole lot of context and I think mm-hmm. that that lines up with what you're saying too it feels like she wrote cardigan as its own thing and then was like oh wait I can actually expand on this because there's other perspectives that happened in this exactly mm-hmm I mean, and that makes so much sense because Betty is, of course, at the core of it. I mean, I guess you could say that James is at the core of it since James was with both Augustine and Betty. But Betty feels like the main character in a lot of ways, you know? I mean, yeah, she's the only one that's named directly on the album. And she's the one that Mm -hmm. kind of got hurt in the whole thing. I guess Augustine did too, which she talks about in Long Pond, but... um, And I think it's so interesting that she made Cardigan with Aaron and then she made August with Jack and then Betty she made with all three of them. Mm. So so that's another thing to keep in mind, too, is like Cardigan, she was kind of making with someone that she was working with for the first time. And maybe she was kind of a little bit more reserved and telling him what it was about, because even Aaron said in Long Pond, he has no idea what this woman is writing about and that he's surprised every time he reads her lyrics because he mm-hmm. himself finds hidden meanings. And he's like, what? God, I love him. I love the way he talks about Taylor. Uh, uh, It's like the way that I wish like all men would talk about their like women Mm. creative partners. Seriously. He totally sees her as an artist first and foremost. I'm so grateful she surrounds herself with men that take her seriously. Obviously, it's not a choice that a lot of like she has the privilege of being able to do that. But um, but God, it just it makes watching things like that so much more palatable. So in Long Pond... Taylor says cardigan is Betty's perspective from 20 to 30 years later looking back Mm. on a love that was tumultuous Taylor says that in her head Betty and James end up together after the 20 to 30 years but James really put her through it okay I feel like I just need to say this right now what is she talking about in the (laughs) long pond studio session she I don't take anything that she is saying this is why I've only seen it once Madison I just feel like she is making things up like I know that's rude of me I know I should just take her seriously but it's like she I'm just like looking at what she's writing about I'm looking at her songs. I'm listening to her songs. And then I hear her talking about them. And she just seems like a little kid that's like, and then this happened. And then uh, this is the truth. 
And I'm just so confused. I saw someone say that it sounds like she's making up an elaborate lie story for her parents after she snuck out. Oh my God. That's literally what it sounds like listening to her talk about this. Like, first of all, 20 or 30 years later. So she's talking from the perspective of a 50 year old woman. Why, Taylor? What's the exactly? Point? But then the song Betty is from James' 17 year old perspective. Like, I don't understand. <laughs> And, and like, I relate to that. Like, I feel like I'm always making art that I'm creating meaning to after the fact. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm creating meaning to it because I have a meaning in mind when I'm writing it, but it's like, I don't want to tell someone what this is actually about. Right. So instead I like then treat it as if it's a piece of art that I've never seen before. Like and assigning. I'm like, yes. And then I assign different meaning to it because like, fuck everyone else. They don't need to know what I was thinking when I was writing this. Right. And I feel like Taylor does that, but I'm just like, why, honey? Why did you choose these things to say? (laughs) And it totally, yeah, it goes back to her body language too, because the way she talks about these songs is so different compared to the way she talks about other songs in Long Pond. And the way she has these like prepared, genuine meanings about songs like My Tears Ricochet or about This Is Me Trying. Like she talks about those songs with such heart and with such sureness in herself. But then when it comes to these songs she's like looking around sipping her wine giggling in between every word like saying things very sarcastically and yeah like telling jack to like stop stop saying like stop talking jack stop. no yeah cut the bit drop like <laughs> yes. they literally say a million times like this is a bit we're doing a bit like it's so funny also for context long pond was produced or like under the list of producers i should say mm. is taylor andrea swift austin swift Jack Antonoff and Tree Payne and Taylor's lawyer. Huh? Yeah. So keep in mind, Aaron is not included in that. I don't think Aaron um, entertains all of the nonsense that she does, because if you also look at the credits that William Bowery is under on songs, none of them are songs that Aaron worked on. So I don't think Aaron wants to be involved in the William Bowery drama or whatever drama her lawyer's involved in in Long Pond Studio Sessions. I don't know why her lawyer would need to be included in a thing like that. What, um, Madison? That's insane. Yes, uh, I, and her I'm not lawyer. Wait, and... Austin Swift too? Her brother? Hmm. So her brother, her mom, herself, her publicist, her lawyer, and her best friend Jack Antonov. Obviously, I'm putting that label into her mouth, but I mean, my my ultimate ship is her and Jack Antonov's best friendship. <laughs> I love them. I love yes. them together. I love them Me almost too. as much as I love um, Aaron. Aaron is just like my angel. Mm. I love of him. Course. He is an angel. He oh, is. that photo he posted of the red PR package he got. His With little the scarf. scarf. <laughs> it was so sweet. I love And I loved, I also loved his explanation on, on peace when he kind of gave his little excerpt of oh, like, God. you know, I have depression and this yes. song really sits with me because who wants to deal with someone with depression? Oh, I love him. Anyways, this is just like an Aaron fan podcast. I just going quickly into the Big Red Machine album, um, his song Ghost of Cincinnati, like, mm. you know, just a, basically about being a ghost and like having to remind yourself to live like your father like you have to live but mm-hmm. still like identifying as a ghost because of your like depression I'm just oh like I'm so grateful and to I, him I think that's why Aaron and Taylor work so well together because they mm-hmm. both have these hidden struggles that they kind of have to deal with behind the scenes where 
Aaron has to deal with being a parent on the surface and Taylor has to deal Mm. with being this giant international pop star on the surface, but they both have these demons that they're fighting in the background. But yeah, really intriguing that her lawyer is just like listed as a producer. And the reason my hypothesis behind that is that Disney is this international company and her lawyer, um, I have looked him up. I've looked into him a little bit. He is very well known and renowned for his international affairs, like specifically on his LinkedIn, there's reviews from people who have hired him and they say things like he's great at integrating other cultures and this and that and being sensitive to international relations, which would add up in Taylor not being too gay in Long Pond Studio Sessions because it would get banned in certain countries that Disney streams in. Oh my God. Yes. And that is my explanation for why she made. Yes. This is why I think Long Pond is the most hetero thing because. Because she made it with Disney. Everything is coming together. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And Long Pond Studio Sessions is where she revealed that William Bowery was Joe too, because it had to be from a male's perspective if she's singing about kissing women. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. So I love this hypothesis. I love, I love Mm -hmm. your analysis of this. Thank you. I feel like the question that any of our skeptical queer listeners are going to have is why would she have partnered with Disney then? Like she could partner with any, any organization. I mean, she literally has a partnership with Netflix, like a three film deal. um, And she's only done two of those. I believe she's only done the reputation tour and Miss Americana. So she still has one with Netflix. I mean, she has partnered with Apple and she even just released Christmas tree farm, old timey version with Amazon. So she has no shortage of media companies to partner with. So why, if she had to be so, so heterosexual like and het explain everything would she have chosen Disney well we also have to keep in mind that I'm pretty sure she signed her contract with Disney which includes two films I believe so that's why mm. people assume Evermore Long Pond will come at some point mm-hmm. but um, I assume she signed her contract with Disney prior to her even knowing she was going to write or release Folklore and prior to the pandemic so maybe she You're assumed so right. that her films with Disney would be more about Loverfest where she can do that like allyship shit and like make that pass and make it be like a live lover experience so that's what I kind of assume is she wasn't planning on ever releasing folklore let alone making a live session of it and having to explain her songs in between every song and when she kind of realized that that was where she was going to have to go after releasing folklore she was like all right let's write up this narrative with her lawyer in tree pain Oh, wow. I I love this. This really changes things for me. I feel like, you know, because I'm definitely a new gayler and like, this is like our first year. And by our, I meant me and my wife, not you and me. (laughs) I mean, me Um, too, though. Yeah. Right. Like, I feel like I'm so new to this. It's really exciting to see these perspectives for the first time um, because I have never really cared about celebrity and the inner workings of celebrity that much before now. And I've never really thought about it. So a lot of times I do see her decisions as, you know, very straightforward and it takes effort for me to apply nuance to them. I mean, I've said before that the Britney doc really changed things for me. Even so, it's like, imagine everything that's not in the Britney dog 
yeah, I just have had more exposure to PR decisions and like why someone might make a, a PR decision. And uh, yeah. And then that article by Colton Haynes came out yesterday. Did you happen to see that? I didn't. What are you talking about? It's in New York. I think it's in New York magazine. The actor Colton Haynes, he was on Teen Wolf. He came out as gay a few years ago. He wrote this amazing article about his experience in Hollywood, how everyone around him was like, you cannot be gay. You cannot, it cannot be obvious that you are gay. And his bearding relationships that he's been in and kind of what that experience was where everyone around him was simultaneously exploiting his gayness um, and kind of like holding it over his head, especially like fellow gay men in the industry who would like abuse their power. But Mm. also it's like, but you can't actually act gay because you won't be marketable to everyone. So that coming out now, I really hope will shift a few people's skepticism when it comes to why Taylor might still be straight. (laughs) Still might be straight. Excuse me, like still closeted. straight, yeah. Yeah, why why she might be so heavily in the closet. I'm so glad that I'm seeing more of these celebrities coming out talking about closeting and bearding in Hollywood. This has to be like Mm. the third one in the past few months that I've seen. Um, Another one I saw was Elvira. Great example of someone who was closeting and secretly had a girlfriend for over a decade and no one no one suspected or talked about it and of course someone like Colton Haynes from a show like Teen Wolf where he has to be marketable to teen girls as straight male that's hot with abs I'm assuming he's one of those I've never even seen the show he was actually I've never seen it either but um he was actually like the kind of toxic masculine um like Mm -hmm. alpha male bully so like certainly not someone that could be perceived as gay yeah no that's totally not marketable then for his what he was working on at the time like literally I don't understand how people can see stories like that in the media and not think to themselves with like a little bit of nuance about Taylor's incredibly public relationships with men and Mm. the way that she's been marketed in her life it's so interesting how they just choose not to make that connection what are what are your thoughts on cardigan do you see this song because I read this amazing article last night Mm -hmm. that kind of encapsulated the whole queerness of the love triangle and why we all see it as so queer and how it has to do a lot with like blurred lines in relationships and unknowingness of like boundaries and like that feeling of when you're a teenager and you're friends with another woman or girl and you don't really know if you guys are a thing or if you're not and the article I'm talking about is called Our Love Lasts So Long Queer Devotion in Taylor Swift's Folklore great article I'm sure we'll mention it again at some point yeah. we both just read it for the first time last night um, so Sunny um, from the podcast The Lavender Menace actually sent me the link to that article it's wow. fantastic it's so amazing I want to talk about that more in depth in another episode but the way that it went into kind of like girlhood and the intimacy of being a teenager with your with your friends just really tied together why this love triangle feels so fucking queer despite the the female pronouns and the names like it really is ingrained in the feelings so like what is your thought about that for cardigan I mean I just as an aside like there's no doubt in the world that all three of these people, Betty, James, and Augustine are girls. Because, I mean, she literally names Betty and James after her, like, best friend's daughters. There's no no reason in the world why she would name characters after girls unless she wanted them to be obvious, like, as she wants it as a marker to us 
to know that they're girls. Like, there's just no reason, especially naming Inez in Betty and like explicitly naming that. It's like the three names I'm saying are the three daughters of Blake and Ryan. And now you know. Like that legacy of them being named after their daughters will go on a lot longer than whatever she says in Long Pond. Than her. It's, that's exactly right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so here, I'm so glad we started this discussion. You pointing out to me that her lawyer's on it and that it's a Disney production because that just really now solidifies to me the choice she made in naming them after real life girls that are so important to her is way more important than what she says in a Disney movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, no, totally. So, and going to like what cardigan means in general, like it's ultimate like sleepover <sighs> intimacy. It's sharing each other's clothes. I'm going to cry. <laughs> Exactly. Like, that's what this is to me. Cardigan is just such a magical little song about not being taken seriously, like not being able to really be seen by everyone. And so when you are seen by your best friend by your girlfriend, whatever that term might mean to you, whether it just means your absolute best girlfriend or like you guys maybe did make it official. It's the most magical feeling in the world. Seriously. The intimacy between teenage girls is something that's so heavenly. And the thing is too, it's this really goes to that Taylor has always had it in her head that teenage girls are wise and knowing Mm -hmm. and no one takes them seriously. Thinking yeah, about when you're nothing, young, they assume, assume you, you know, know nothing. nothing. Exactly. And I just think about nothing new, you know, assuming that she did write that when she was 22, she was looking back on her 18 year old self and being like, wow, I really did think that I knew everything when I was 18. It's like thinking about that song in conversation with Betty's perspective in Cardigan. It's like, I knew everything when I was 18. And Betty's like, yeah. I did. I was smart. Like, I did know everything. She goes through this. You're so right. It's like a roller coaster. She goes through that in Nothing New. She's like, I thought I knew everything at 18. How embarrassing. But now 10 years after Nothing New, she's like, actually, I did know everything when I was 18. Exactly. And also, I'm just kind of thinking about it now as you're talking about like teenage intimacy between teenage girls and the ambiguity of the song and how it never mentions love it never mentions yes it never mentions love once but she mentions but I knew you I knew all the things we did together I knew all the feelings that I felt with you I knew that when I felt like this old thing that no one wanted when I felt like nothing new you put me on and you said that I was your favorite I don't know what I'm supposed to call that I don't use the word love once in this song when I was young, I knew everything. I knew that that meant something. It doesn't have to be about, like, maybe they weren't romantic before James and Augustine got together. Maybe James didn't even cheat on Betty in the first place because, like, they were just best friends. That feels, as someone that, you know, was a queer teen in the same time that Taylor was that is way more true to life to me than like I think currently like Gen Z queer kids like they can they they do have girlfriends in high school like mm-hmm. they do have partners in and they're in queer relationships in high school but like from me and Taylor's generation back in old timey days it's like that wasn't the case like what we had was like that like obsessive best friends 
that you get wildly jealous when they have a boyfriend and you can't exactly like put your finger on why you feel that way. So the idea of like Betty and James sharing clothes, sleeping in each other's beds every single night, like, and then for like one whole summer. But when James says like, plus I saw you dance with him. It's like the end of the year, they go to a dance, they go together. And then what if Betty ditches James to go dance with some guy? And And maybe they're not even official. Maybe they're not even this like official monogamous couple. But yeah, like you said, maybe they're just really close friends and that jealousy is still there. Exactly. Because that jealousy does exist. Like you don't have to be a like romantic official couple to feel jealousy. (laughs) Totally. No, And a lot of times, a lot of times jealousy you feel over your friendships that are supposed to just be friendships can be the hardest to deal with because you're also dealing with like guilt and shame on top of jealousy and then not acknowledging like the romantic feelings in a very established way between the two of you so it just kind of lingers there and like grows and eats you alive and then the jealousy builds too with that James is like I can't deal with this like I can't deal with the fact that like she would ditch me for a boy so she spends all summer with like bad girl Augustine and like maybe they hook up but I think a lot of times they're probably just having sleepovers like I slept next to her all summer long I slept next to her that doesn't mean we did anything exactly Finally, it crescendos with like, will you kiss me? And it'll be like, I always dreamed it. Yeah, like we never kissed before, meaning they maybe were never actually a couple. They was just that weird, ambiguous friendship that we're talking about. Yeah, And that's why this feels so queer, regardless of the pronouns and the names. It's truly in the subtext. Um, Something I find really interesting too is like, this woman doesn't even know what these songs are about because she says... Cardigan Cardigan is from Betty's perspective 20 to 30 years later. Betty is from James' perspective as a 17-year-old boy. Yet, in Cardigan, Betty is singing about kissing in cars and going to downtown bars. Mm. I know I was a rebellious (laughs) 17-year-old. I did go to a couple bars when I was 17 because I found fake IDs and I lived in New York City and I had that freedom. I'm Mm. wondering where in the hell Betty as a 17-year-old with James, another 17-year-old, are going to a bar together. Yeah. I mean, they still have homerooms. Yeah. Like, you guys have school on Monday. Why are you... going to bars like it and and why is James riding a skateboard if you guys were kissing in cars all the time like I don't when it just comes to cardigan it's like I don't think that cardigan was written from the perspective of a teenage girl at first especially because it says when you are young they assume you know nothing because young women still aren't taken seriously because like no women are taken seriously but especially young women and we talked about this last episode the juxtaposition that she names of like vintage tea brand new phone and just those like small contradictions that boomers love to point out and like act as proof of our lack of intelligence our lack of foresight that was such a great point sorry in the last episode when you said that it was such a great point because I had never considered those lyrics like that I thought it was kind of corny actually those lyrics but I have not been able to listen to cardigan the same way since you mentioned it was just like a juxtaposition and kind of literally how like boomers look at younger kids like oh you have these ripped jeans you bought them ripped like that same notion exactly (laughs) 
And then, you know, just like girls in high heels wobbling down cobblestones. Like how many viral videos have like men taken being like, look at these dumb girls wearing high heels, like, or wearing a tiny skirt in the middle of winter. Just that kind of criticism is very like college age to me. So like I, when I heard the voice memo, I was like, of course she wrote this about her time in New York in her early twenties. Yep. On the high line. Once in 20 lifetimes. I just, I mean, it's it's very, like, why are these two random 17-year-olds on the high line in New York now? Um, like, get to class. So- get to biology. Why <laughs> are you guys kissing class. in cars and going to downtown bars? You're 17. Yes. Um, Their senior trip to New York. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know how they say, like, band camp, like, shit always happens. Like, maybe it really was. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the context I'm going to look at it from now on. They were These teenagers were on their little, like, band trip to New York yeah. to go play. <laughs> at like yes. a at like a convention and they snuck out of the <laughs> hotel to go to the highlight <laughs> but while we're on the lyric um high heels on cobblestones she never mm-hmm. specifies who's wearing the high heels and the fact that it happens at the exact time stamp in the song as james mentions cobblestones i didn't know like, that yes the same fucking time stamp madison this is the woman we're dealing with I'm like, what else have I missed? <laughs> what the I fuck know. else have I missed? I, every time I think that I have it all down, something else pops up. <laughs> oh, but yeah, I was going to mention that next. So it's great that they're at the same fucking time stamp. Of course they are. Why wouldn't they be? Um, yeah, why wouldn't they be? Because <laughs> James talks about, I was walking home on broken cobblestones just thinking of you. Um, James, are you wearing a cardigan and heels while walking mm. home mm. on cobblestones? Because she also says, Betty says, when I felt like an old cardigan, you put me on. So James wears cardigan cardigans too which i'm all for men wearing cardigans they do but come on especially queer men and like gender non-conforming men there's also a reading um about james being a trans man and yes that was in the that was in the article um that we read yeah there's a great argument that you know james doesn't know that she's a girl uh because you know lots of trans people come out and like realize their gender like realize oh sorry the wrong sorry i totally i said that wrong that james is a trans woman right yeah james is a trans woman right so Um, in the article they mentioned a reading about james being a trans woman and that was why she wanted approval from um betty and augustine so much and why she was willing to mm -hmm. kind of like entertain both because she was like well you both want to be my friend and you both want to like be involved with me and it was like very exciting for James so totally I, th- I love that reading too I love the idea that Taylor would be talking about perspectives of queers of variants ex- variant experiences you know like I think that's why she left it so ambiguous too definitely so in terms of where Taylor falls into this love triangle, there is so much debate about this, even just in the Gaylor community. Everyone has their own kind of opinions about it and who the characters represent in real life, where Taylor falls into it with her real life experiences. I'm of the belief that Taylor at some point was Betty, James, and Augustine at some point in her life. And I, it's that's why I think it's hard for me to try to assign Taylor being one of the three characters, because every time I do have like a really solid concrete assignment I'm proved wrong by something else and something else makes more sense and so it all just kind of blurs together we talked about on the last episode how Jimmy Fallon called Taylor Betty at the end of the interview she made a really weird face so there's possible proof that Taylor's Betty also the lyrics from Cardigan I knew you living in a gold age sneak into my birdcage which was the original lyrics from the voice memo is also more possible proof that Taylor's Betty because we all know she 
has bird cages in all of her home. She references bird cages as early as 1989, I think, in her music at least. Yeah, and in her videos, Speak Now is a bird cage. Yeah. Again, like coming at it strictly from an artist perspective, of course, she's all three of them and she's none of them. Exactly. Yeah, this is Taylor Swift. She wouldn't make it one way or the other. She's great at double meanings, triple meanings, quadruple meanings, endless meanings. That's the whole point. That's why she's such a fabulous writer. She's really showing the three sides of being in a relationship that's complicated and any sort of love triangle like none of them are perpetrators all of them are victims I mean I guess you could argue that James is the is the villain in it because like James is the one doing the cheating but I mean even but also do we know if James is really cheating or if there were never established boundaries that's exactly right and that's why she says also in Long Pond and we'll get to that when she's talking about August she's like everyone has feelings everyone wants to be seen and loved August included, all she wanted was love. And so did James and so did Betty. Do you have any more thoughts on Cardigan? No, no. I just that I love it so much. I love, I love that this is like the ultimate validating teen girl song. Me too. And I love that it was the single from folklore too. I think it mm. really encapsulates folklore in a way that's palatable for the public to listen to. And it's so interesting to think of it pairing with Willow since the, the videos connect with each other. If you watch them back to back. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a whole other thing we could get into and what that could possibly mean. They connect to each other. If you play them back to back, they connect to each other. If you play them at the same time, the time stamps mm, and the yeah. frames match up. Um, That's a whole other story that I tried to deep dive into a couple months ago. And I think I lost my mind actually. I had to take a little break, but maybe <laughs> eventually we can, maybe we could talk about that in another episode. Um, we'll have to, just, when we do our portrait of a lady on fire episode, we'll have to yes. really dive into that. August is like the fun, flirty, uh, like nostalgic, but in like a summer way. It's the ultimate summer song. And I love Jack Antonoff so much the way he loves this song. My wife and I exclusively refer to him as a he, him, lesbian. Oh my God. I've said that before too. Mm-hmm. Behind closed doors, of course. But I have <laughs> totally said that before because he mm-hmm. has said before that he only works with gay women. Yeah. But that Taylor Swift doesn't not include that, even though the question was about Taylor Swift, but whatever. Mm, one of my favorite moments in podcast history. <laughs> Jack is uh, one of my favorite people, one of my favorite gaylers, I think. Yes. Um, but yeah, he totally is a he, him, lesbian. He is. He has that energy yeah he really does so I love this song for sure and there is a heartbreak to it but it's a heartbreak that I'm so comfy in uh Mm -hmm. just that that heartbreak of like oh well it was good while it lasted that's totally it that's such a good like mantra for the song it was good while it lasted same as a bottle of wine you know I'm sad it's I'm sad we're over with this bottle but you know what it was delicious while it lasted and I feel good Mm -hmm. about it (laughs) In Long Pond, about this song, she says, I've just been naming her Augustus or Augustine in my head. And then Jack says, well, that changes things for me because she's very nameless to me, but now it's forever changed. And the way he says she's very nameless to me is so shady and backhanded. I don't know who or what he would be referring to with that, but that's how a lot of their conversations go in Long Pond. Her and Jack, it's like them bantering and like doing this weird bit back and forth that's super passive aggressive and cryptic. But it's so funny because it's so passive aggressive and cryptic in times like that. And then you have the moments like, 
like when they're explaining my tears ricochet when jack is like i know this song was so important to you yeah and it's my favorite song on the album i i, I mean i think that's why you made it a track five i love that moment between her and jack because taylor literally you can see her like putting down her defenses for one goddamn minute just hearing him and being like thank you jack like thank you for saying that and she's just talking to her friend and they're just talking about this beautiful song that they did together and he's like this is one of your best songs you've ever written lyrically and she's just like oh thank you jack meanwhile when they talk about august and betty they're like siblings fighting (laughs) yes it's like an inside joke that only they know about and we're the parents that just have to listen to it and be like this is so weird and then aaron's (laughs) just like in between them like tapping his fingers on his little wine glass like nervous as fuck you watch bob's burgers at all i do that that is literally the dynamic between tina as aaron like gene and louise as jack and taylor literally two little troublemakers that are cryptic and like aaron knows about it but like is just hyperventilating trying not to talk yes why is that the most accurate character assignment (laughs) oh my god i will never think of them differently now and i don't know if that's a good thing or not So then Taylor goes into this long spiel. And this is what makes me think, because no one really considers Taylor being August. But when I was rewatching Long Pond for this episode, this whole spiel she goes on about August is very personal. And it's similar to like this spiel on its own is similar to how she talks about the other songs. And she's very somber about it. She's very serious. She knows what the song is about. And she's not really guessing as much when she's talking about this part. So this is one of those moments where it's quote unquote proof that she could be August. And she's says August was obviously about the girl that James had this summer with. She seems like a bad girl, but she's not a bad girl. She's actually really sensitive and she just fell for him and she was trying to seem cool and seem like she didn't care because that's what girls have to do. She was trying to let him think that she didn't care, but she really, really did. And she thought they had something very real. And then he goes back to Betty. So the idea that there's like a bad girl villain in any type of situation who like, quote unquote, takes your man is actually a total myth because that's not actually the case at all. Everybody has feelings and wants to be seen and loved, just like Augustine, that's all she wanted was love. I mean, just her using the term bad girl to describe the perceptions of August, that of course just rings a bell to me because Miss Americana, her opening monologue, is talking about how, you know, she lived her whole life trying to be a good girl and seen as a good girl. And that was so jarring to me because I just feel like those are such loaded terms, like good girl and bad girl. You just can see in Taylor when she speaks on those tropes how ingrained they are into every single choice she's made is that good girl behavior or is that bad girl behavior her kind of reclamation of them literally saying in Miss Americana even though you can tell it's really hard for her to say it my whole life I just wanted to be a good girl and now she's fighting she's like August isn't a bad girl August is a good girl it's like oh Taylor like of course that means that she's also August and that last sentence hit me so hard when I was was watching Long Pond too because I mean I'm not monogamous and it totally resonated with me too of like everybody has feelings and wants to be seen in love mm-hmm. and just like Augustine that's all she wanted was love and I think that single statement can also be applied to her own sexuality you know I've never been a bad girl I just want 
wanted to be seen and loved. And maybe that was a realization that she came to at some point in her life, maybe around the time that she was a teenager. Maybe that's why that kind of inspired this love triangle. And then, of course, Jack says, that's what I love about August. It's not a dream, even though it sounds like it is. The situation feels very close to me getting swept up like that. And then she says, this part's really interesting. It makes me wonder. She says, I had written down in my phone, meet me behind the mall years ago, wanting to write it into a song. Mm. And of course, since the song came out, I don't know who pointed this out kind of recently that meet me behind the mall sounds like meet me behind them all. Intriguing. That phrase, meet me behind the mall. So romantic. So the epitome of nostalgia, like those suburban dreams, you know. In that case, you know, Meet Me Behind the Mall is so tis the damn season and Dorothea to me because, you know, being home in your hometown for the winter and like there's nothing else to do but go to the mall. So like Meet Me Behind the Mall. But obviously they're living, they're in theory teenagers. So that's probably what their life looks like. I really think that she gave the explanation of it being about teenagers to protect from the like very real pain and heartache that's in these songs she says it in cardigan like when you are young people assume you know nothing that's the case like that's why she made them teenagers because that way people wouldn't take them seriously and wouldn't take like that that sort of pain to be as painful as it actually is Something I kind of realized actually last night while reading that article, um, they talk about how at the beginning of Betty, the opening line is, Betty, I won't make assumptions. And then in Cardigan, it also says, when you're young, they assume you know nothing. That parallel is really interesting to me because it could apply to so many different things. Like, for example, don't assume that the story that I'm telling you about these songs is the only story that you can apply to these songs. Mm. Or don't assume that Betty and James were ever even official. Maybe maybe one of them assumed that they were and they weren't. And that blurs those lines. I mean, that's the thing. You can't talk about one song without talking about the other two. So the word assumption is just so interesting. <sighs> and it's a word that Hitlers use against Gaylers quite often. Mm-hmm. Actually, I get a lot of don't assume saying, her sexuality. <laughs> don't assume her sexuality. And I'm like, isn't that exactly what everyone else has been doing for years and years? Yes. Anyways, so I guess it could also be used as Hitler weapons. Maybe I shouldn't mention it. Final thoughts on August, though. The way that it connects to Champagne Problems is really interesting to me. And in Champagne Problems, she says your Midas touch on the Chevy door. And in August, she says salt air and the rust on your door. That is so interesting. I mean, I guess in August, when I hear the rust on your door, I definitely think about a back door. I always pictured Jay. <laughs> Now you're really getting into my imagination. Um, I know. I'm like, oh, okay. I picture James living on a little beach house, like on the ocean. Yeah. So like the salt air, like because the waves and the rain and the precipitation of the ocean are always going like James has a has rust on the back door. So when like Augustine like sneaks up to the house and like opens it, it's like salt air and rust on your door. That means that I'm seeing James. But I, yeah, I never even thought about that in in comparison with champagne problems and i don't know who champagne problems perspective would be from these love it gets so confusing with all of these characters but if she's saying your midas touch on the chevy door wouldn't that be from the perspective of james august touching his door and turning the rust into gold well james also says to betty like kissing in my car again the idea that betty could have the midas touch that turns the rust on the door back into gold 
Oh, maybe maybe Augustine was the rest and Ugh. and Betty turned it back to gold, yeah. you know, 20 to 30 years later as she's <laughs> reflecting on this love. Like the timeline doesn't even make sense. Also, again, if James has a car, why is he walking on cobblestones and riding skateboards everywhere? We need answers. <laughs> oh, it's so confusing. She has me doing like calculus math, trying to figure these stories out. Maybe I should just be like the Hetlers and take it for what she says on surface level. It's so much easier. I know. Oh, doing ignorance really is bliss. It literally is trigonometry with the I know. The tri- <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I have much else to say about August. No, it's such a, I feel like it truly is the, and I know we talked about this again last episode when I asked which one of the three was your favorite. August is my favorite. I think it's the best standalone song. It's so heavenly, the perfect summer song. I just, I love, love, love it. And justice for Augustine. She's not a bad girl. They just whisper in the hallway that she's a bad girl. Um, so now on to Betty, which was my and a lot of other people's gayler introduction, I think. I remember when this album came out, one of my good friends who is a major Swifty, and I at that point was a retired Swifty. I've talked about that before. He had sent me the album and he was like, no, this is really good. You'll like it. So then I opened the track list and before even listening to it, I saw Betty and I went straight to her Instagram and I was like, where's her coming out post then? Before I even listened to Betty <laughs> and I read, I read the, uh, the folklore letter that she wrote and posted, which maybe we should take a look at that. Cause I highlighted some points in that. Um, I, I think about it a lot in the context of what these songs mean. Yeah. And I read through her little letter about folklore and I was like, okay, so this is like a soft lunch coming out. And when I mentioned it to my friend who is a gay man, he was like, no, it's just, it's, it's actually, it's, it's fantasy. Cause it's called folklore. It's like, it's just a story she made up. And I I was like, right. Taylor Swift, who writes so much about her own personal feelings and experiences, just happened to go into quarantine and write an entire made up album that has nothing to do with her. I'm like, interesting. Post, you need to calm down. This completely was the nail in the coffin for me. I was like, okay, so you are just a queer person, a part of the community that was doing this like camp allyship during your entire lover era. Thank God that's what it was. And it wasn't you being an obnoxious ally, you know, just really quick to look look at the folklore letter she says pretty soon these images in my head grew faces or names and became characters I found myself not only writing my own stories but also writing about or from the perspective of people I've never met people I've known and those I wish I hadn't she says a tale that becomes folklore is one that is passed down and whispered around sometimes even sung about the line between fantasy and reality blur and the boundaries between truth and fiction become almost indiscernible Speculation over time becomes fact, myths, ghost stories and fables, fairy tales and parables, gossip and legend, someone's secrets written in the sky for all to behold. Which, with the context of Invisible String, where she says purple pink skies, and then of course the context of now the very first night, I'd write this in the sky, I miss her like it was the very first night. I mean, that letter is literally, I saw it on Twitter when she released it, and I immediately went to her store and bought the clandestine meeting version of her vinyl uh, sight unseen before that moment at best i really loved the archer and didn't understand how i could have loved the archer when i hated taylor swift i mean i read that and i was like oh she's she's finally grown up like she's finally come into her own and sure enough 
I mean, the last year since that happened, I know so much more about Taylor than I ever did. And I see all of her decisions in a different way than I ever did. But I mean, that folklore post, I feel like was a coming out in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. It's very similar to the reputation. There will be no more explanation, just reputation, because she talks so much about secrets, myths, rumors, and how it all comes together. And then sure enough, as the article that we talked about earlier, earlier pointed out seven which is essentially the title song since the only time she mentions something close to folklore in the album is when she describes her relationship with this other girl at seven years old as being like a folk song that's passed down it's just so so queer there's no there's nothing else to describe it but like the idea of of whispers and and how nothing is quite certain and everything is hidden and just the beautiful oral history of of like queerness that's been passed down the only reason that we have like queer history is because of queer people maintaining it over the years like it's just so gorgeous it's so beautiful queer history is never recorded it's just passed down orally from queer elders that tell these stories to younger generations just the title folklore itself sounded queer to me our love will be passed on you know like it might not be reported on in the media but it will be passed on through all the whispers and gossip and the rumors are oh, terrible and cruel but most of them are true most of them are true i that reminds me so i mentioned brandy carlisle i think on the first episode a queer i mean a lesbian country singer so she wrote an autobiography or a memoir in the last year or so and one of the quotes she literally writes about her and her wife that their love is like folklore that'll be passed on through the years. Are you fucking kidding me? No, I'm not. And I just, I it blew me away that she wrote that. And I'm like, obviously, I think that folklore came first, the album, but I really have no idea. I could see them being friends behind the scenes, especially since you said Mary Morris. And maybe that was kind of Brandy, maybe I could totally just see it like this, that Brandy like reached out to Taylor and was like, hey, this line perfectly encapsulates how I feel about, you know, my partner and I would love to use it in my book. And Taylor was probably like, go for it. Or maybe it was the other way around. Maybe Brandy sent her like a copy or like a copy ahead of time. Yeah. And Taylor was like, oh, my God, beautiful. I'm going to include that. Wow. That's not a (gasps) coincidence. Oh, my gosh. What if what if Brandy Carlisle is William Bowery? Whoa, Katie. That means because either Jack or Aaron in a separate interview that was like their own, they weren't with Taylor. One of the interviewers asked about William Bowery, and I don't remember if it was Aaron or Jack. It was Aaron, and he said it's another songwriter. Yes. Who considers Joe Alwyn to be a songwriter? Not me. That would make so much sense if it was Brandy Carlisle. I mean, there are so many theories about who William Bowery is, but that... I know. I don't... I'm not going to go to bat. Like, this is not a hill I'm going to die on. But, I mean, that just occurred to me that a high-profile lesbian country musician might not be the most palatable. Obviously, that's just one little theory that I just came up with. (laughs) Yeah, and if Taylor revealed that it was Brandy Carlisle, that would out her immediately. Her and a lesbian country singer writing about kissing women? That's not very male perspective of her. Um, so on to Betty. I know we had a little bit of a 
we had to cover it though. I don't even care. This is where she reveals or not reveals, but this is where she starts talking about Joe a little bit and his contribution. She says in Long Pond that she heard Joe singing the fully formed chorus of Betty from another room. She said he was singing the chorus of it and I thought it sounded really good from a man's voice from a masculine perspective. I really liked that it seemed to be an apology. I've written so many songs from a female's perspective of wanting a male apology that we decided to make it from a teenage boy's perspective apologizing after he loses the love of his life because he's been foolish. Jack says, allegedly, according to the internet, we don't know who it's about or we don't know what it's about. And then she goes, no, we wrote it. I'm confirming that he's been foolish. And he goes, no, we know he's been foolish, but we don't know who William Bowery is. So yeah, okay. Oh my God. I, uh, again, why so aggro in a way that like, I don't understand. The cheekiness is off the chart. And they're sitting there like... And then she like (laughs) drinks her little wine after that. And she's like, no, he's been foolish. Sip, sip. He's foolish. And it's like, yeah, we got that point. Jack's saying that we don't know who William Bowery is, babe. Honestly, Aaron during that part looks like he's like white knuckling. Like, I don't want to be here. (laughs) He literally looks so nervous the whole time. I feel so bad for him. He's so anxious sitting in his little chair with his little wine glass. Like, I just so tense. And then Jack is sitting there like tapping his foot and like giggling in the corner and the general Gaylor theory is that Taylor is James because she was named after James Taylor. Um, mm-hmm. Just wanted to throw that out there because I think that's kind of a popular opinion yeah. amongst yeah. Gaylors and even amongst some Hitlers. I can't see James being Taylor more than being the other two. At one point, I think I did just from the sole notion of the James Taylor reference. Now that I've really had time to sit with these songs, they all look like equally she could be any of them. Because if she said anything in Long Pond in these explanations it's like think of these people as complex please think of them as complex please think of none of them as victims exclusively please think of none don't of make them assumptions villains. and I'm grateful for that I'm always grateful for any nuance that she adds to her song explanations but I will say it's like with the explanation of this being like oh you know I've written a lot of songs about men about wanting an apology from a man so I thought I'd do a song from the perspective of a man giving apology why does she that's so boring to me that sounds like this is all alleged my own opinion it sounds like this was written by Tree Payne and the lawyer this was their way of making it some kind of like almost a slight feminist tint on the perspective and being like still kind of genuine from Taylor's person like if she can't talk about it being gay maybe she can talk about it being feminist in some way of like you know I've sang about wanting a male apology so in this song I gave it and it's a win for teenage girls everywhere I want that to be true like I want that to be true that this is not from like her own earnest explanation of the song because if that is the case it's like there's such an inexplicable disconnect between the complexity of the music she writes and the meaning that she puts into the world of what these songs are and I just can't accept that like her songs are so beautiful so smart and so interesting and like half of the things she'll say randomly are so darkly humorous so self-aware complex I just I like love who she is when she's candid and then other moments like this it's like why are you the ultimate girl boss gatekeep 
gaslight like the ultimate like white feminist trademark mm-hmm. and i'm just so sick of that like i'm so sick of that split that that it me keeps too seeing. and this whole part sounded like it was scripted in a way not scripted yeah. but maybe that there was talking points for her like you heard joe singing the fully formed chorus you s- thought it sounded good from a masculine perspective because he has a deep voice and this is why you wrote about it from the perspective of a male apology and she was like okay got it Action. and so jack's pushback could just be like Jack is allowed to do pushback because he's mm-hmm. not happy about it and he knows that Taylor loves him and he's not going to push too hard but like being a little sarcastic and like wow as if they're doing a bit and like leaving that's the thing that's crazy is that she leaves that all in and she leaves it off like she starts off by saying yeah Joe's William Bowery and then it ends with Jack being like well we don't know who William Bowery is so yeah and then it cuts to them performing Betty <laughs> like like, okay, you just said who it was, but now Jack <laughs> is saying you don't know who it is. So you guys genuinely aren't making sense. And I think that was the point. I mean, this is why it's I have crazy. not watched it again, because I'm just like, what am I watching? <laughs> no, yeah. Like, what are you guys even talking about? And they're all like tipsy, of course. So they're just like, this is such a bit like, it's so funny. Another thing I wanted to mention was the line, will you kiss me on the porch in front of all your stupid friends? In what world would a straight couple a teenage straight couple be nervous to kiss in front of their friends at a party are you kidding me I had straight couples literally humping each other in the hallways in high school like no straight couple is afraid to show intimacy to their partner that that line is what sounds the most queer to me out of the entire song aside from it being called Betty aside from her singing she her pronouns just the notion of will you actually kiss me in front of your friends if I come back I mean Madison the thing too is that if it's from a boy's perspective if James is a boy fuck him like seriously fuck him for being like your stupid friends yeah it's like what these girls have done nothing to you these girls probably support like in the universe that Taylor's creating the love triangle sucks like in long con this idea that like James would be like Uh, will you kiss me in front of all your stupid friends like actually her friends are the ones that supported her while you were cheating on her according to this myth this like narrative and I just like the last thing you should do is be calling them stupid however then you look at it from the perspective that like intuitively makes sense with like a queer experience where Betty was the one that was like you know kind of ashamed to be like openly queer even though her and James had something special and like James left Betty to actively explore their sexuality with Augustine and so now like James is like should I really show up at Betty's like party when all of her like stupid church friends or like her stupid like conservative normie friends are going to be there like but then like as soon as Inez was like I like you know James that stupid dyke you are friends with yes that's (laughs) that's literally how I picture Inez yes like um you know she actually hooked up with that girl Augustine and, and then like Betty literally being like well you know I could never believe Inez but I'm sure that absolutely happened yeah and because th- secretly Betty has yeah her own Betty's feelings like, for James yeah but he's like well I absolutely know that James would hook up with a girl. And then James being like, I messed up, but you messed up too. Like, will you kiss me in front of your stupid friends? The friends that like drove us apart and made you dance with that guy? It's all subtext. And like, that's the love triangle I believe in. And that's the love triangle that Jack Antonoff, who 
literally is like I'm only comfortable with the way lesbians talk about relationships that's the love triangle that res- that would resonate with him totally that's such not a great like point an insane patriarchal you're stupid friends yeah and that would make James a bad guy for saying that like why are they stupid because they told Betty that you were fucking around behind Cheating her, on her exactly exactly that would make James such a villain and that's not really how I want to see it I want to see it how Taylor says you know they're all just wanting love also another thing that came up with Betty was a couple months ago there was this like weird leaked video still no one knows where it came from it was like 10 seconds long so she's recording Betty and she is recording the line Betty one time I was riding on my skateboard when I passed your house was like I couldn't breathe and she messes up the line about the skateboard and she goes ha 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 I messed up my line about my skateboard because I don't have one and people took that as like solid solid proof that she's James I don't really see that as solid proof that she's James but I do think it's funny to add to our little archive of evidence that she's singing about true experiences I completely agree that's how I took it too I was like oh that is good like the Gaylers that want to use that as evidence like good I'm happy it's there for them it certainly doesn't add to the the Hitler evidence that like exactly you know it's not at all from her perspective so and it totally confirms for me um someone messaged me a while back saying that the whole folklore narrative reminds them of the French literary drama. And maybe you can help me out with this because I don't know anything about French. Oh, Um, Romana Clef. Yes. Thank you for pronouncing that. That's what I was nervous about. (laughs) That whole genre being about real situations masked with fake characters and fake scenarios and settings and things like that. So Mm -hmm. the whole her being like, oh, I messed up the line about my skateboard because I don't have one in this song. That's very true. But I messed up the fictional part because I forgot that this is from a fictional. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I, I see that as being true for all of it like every single one of her songs like yeah yeah, you mess up the part that's based that you like added for spice (laughs) but you get the the rest of it right because that's what you lived and that's what you understand like in like the bridge and dress like flashback when you met me your buzz cut my hair bleach how that's supposed to refer to the Met Gala her mating Joe but it just like completely derails from the rest of the song being gay it's like that like she's like let me add in the fake narrative part so that this can be applied to my fake PR narrative so yeah speaking of a fake PR narrative can we get to Grammy gate I will tell you all I know about Grammy gate is that Taylor won the Grammy for folklore in January 2021 is that right I think it was in March 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 2021 and come like June like right before the British music awards the Brits is that what they're called the Brit awards right around then everyone was like Joe Alwyn has just received a Grammy for having his like production credits added to enough of the album to qualify him and I remember watching the like streaming the Brits like Joe wasn't there she was with Tree and then he meant she mentioned Joe at the end when she was like doling it out and I just remember how like awkward she acted when she said Joe's name versus at the Grammys just a few months earlier when she was like to Joe the first person that I play every song for and then Betty James and Inez's parents who is the the, the second and third person I play every song for which is such a sweet intimate thank you and like you know I was just like I mean even if they are in a bearding relationship like Joe seems to be like her best friend you know Mm -hmm. like I loved that and then at the Brit Awards she was like 
it's like she said Joe at the end because she remembered in Coney Island she has a line about not like not forgetting your name at the podium and it's like she's like okay I literally have to say Joe now because I wrote that stupid song that's all I know about it and I have like tried to read stuff on it and I'm just like huh I don't understand this and like it's a lot yeah so I'm so excited I'm so excited because this is something that kind of solidified for me I've always been a toe truther um I've always believed that Taylor and Joe were in a very romantic committed relationship and that did not define at all her queerness like she was still very queer to me regardless of if she was with Joe and I still truly want to believe that because that is what she kind of presents to the public but this Grammygate situation definitely gave me a little bit more context as to why so many gaylers believed that maybe they were just in like a contractual bearding situation and that they are really good friends or like companions or partners in some way but maybe not necessarily romantic or sexual just in a way that benefits the both of them. So I'm going to start with what she said in Long Pond about William Bowery because Long Pond was the first time that she revealed who William Bowery was. So Long Pond didn't happen until November of 2020 and Folklore came out in July of 2020. So for those months in between July and November, it was all Swifties speculating that William Bowery was Joe. No one had any answers, but Long Pond confirmed it, right? So in Long Pond, she says... She mentions William Bowery being a writer. And then Jack says, William, I never got to meet. Of course, he also says that in his like weird little cryptic voice bit that they're doing. And then she says, there's been a lot of discussion about William Bowery and his identity because it's not a real person. Mm. And then Jack says, oh, it's not. In his weird, sarcastic little voice, Taylor Mm -hmm. says, Jack, come on, like, keep up with the bit, Jack. Come on. You're on the payroll, Jack. You're going to keep it up. And then Jack goes, (laughs) and then Jack goes, ha ha ha, I'm doing a bit. And Taylor goes, yeah, so William Bowery is Joe, (laughs) as we know. Wow. And then she gulps. She goes, as we know, gulp. (laughs) <laughs> and no seriously like it's so obvious and then it's she extremely, says yeah it's extremely awkward to watch it's so awkward and then she says okay keep in mind also at this time when I watched it I was like maybe it's awkward because she never talks about their relationship so publicly and like yeah maybe this yes. is a weird moment for her to be talking about her and Joe and like that's kind of what I assumed but now that I know more context I'm I don't think so. She says, Joe plays piano beautifully and he's always just playing and making up things and creating things. Such a weird general statement to make. And she did say that. She said she explained that on Jimmy Kimmel after the fact, too. Uh, She gave an interview after Long Pond came out and she was talking about like how great it is to work with Joe and how he's always just making little melodies and always playing the piano. Yeah. I mean, we don't know a lot about Joe's background. Maybe he honestly does have like a little bit of a musical theater kind of moment because I know he went to like a few acting schools, but right. I never imagined Joe to be a musician. I, mm-hmm. if he is a writer and he's coming up with songs as beautiful as Exile and Betty, then maybe he needs to switch career paths because I just don't understand why he wasn't in Long Ponds playing music with them. They don't have to make out on screen. They don't have to like kiss or even talk about being together. Like if he was do like why wasn't he there? I just don't understand. Like their we'll relationship. Good. I'm so glad we will. We will get um, to that too because why hasn't Joe ever posted about folklore or acknowledged just, his work? The relationship is so confusing to me. Like I get that I'm in kind of a 
extremely wildly different position than she is but like I am so obsessed like with like my wife <laughs> and I like oh, love yeah. talking about her like I talk about her in our random podcast just because like she's crucial to my life like I just don't understand how they could be wildly in love and she could be writing all these songs about being so obsessed and like he's the only one and they're never together like they they don't even perform on stage together like in this isolated cabin, like at Aaron's recording studio in upstate New York, wouldn't that be the perfect place for them? I mean, her mom and her brother were there and this was still during quarantine. So it's not like Joe was out filming anything because that's always exactly. the Exactly. He is filming something right now, but he also didn't show up to any of the Red events. He didn't post about Red at all, Taylor's version. He hasn't even acknowledged anything that she's done since Folklore. He had, didn't actually didn't even acknowledge Folklore or Evermore albums that he's credited on so it's really interesting why wouldn't he write something like it was such an honor to be able to like work with taylor like she's an incredible like just something to talk about like what a great musician she is it makes him look like such an asshole from my perspective because if all of it is that they are together it makes him look like such an asshole for not acknowledging that he got to work with musicians as amazing as Aaron Dessner, Jack Antonoff, and Taylor fucking Swift. And he's not acknowledging the fact that he won a whole ass Grammy or the fact that he's credited on a third of songs on Folklore. Like, it's just mind-blowing to me. And even if they are in this very real romantic, loving relationship, I don't understand how Swifties can be so head over heels for this relationship and be like, he's such a good boyfriend. He's so cute. Like, I love their relationship. To me, from an outsider perspective, completely on biased he sounds like the least supportive partner ever it's really troubling to me just as someone in an extremely committed relationship like taylor does seem to be like i just cannot imagine not wanting to like it's not even like not being there but it's like not like expressing yourself at all anything like i mean i'm really keep wondering like is there any precedent for a situation like this where like two celebrities are together and we have no evidence of them being together at all like they never talk about each other they never like post any sort of lovey-dovey messages the closest I could think of on my own was Ryan Gosling and Eva Mendez who have been together and have two children and are like very private as far as celebrity couples go they still name drop each other like once a year they still are like I'm so grateful for like what an amazing partner I have and like and it's not one-sided exactly whereas only taylor is talking about joe like why wouldn't joe ever talk about taylor especially in the context of folklore another example i can think of is also dolly parton with like her longtime partner husband and also Haley kiyoko i believe has a girlfriend and they've alluded a lot to being together but have never officially said that they are together and i know her girlfriend was like on the bachelorette or something so maybe there's a reason for that with no hollywood oh my god i am so excited i cannot wait to look into this i'm i'm like obsessed with bachelor bachelorette stuff so back to what taylor was saying about william bowery when talking about exile she said you know he's always making things up and creating things and then she says exile was crazy because joe had written that entire piano part bon ivers part he was just singing it the whole way that the whole first verse is and then jack goes lyrics too jesus your lyrics too wow oh my god i hate this i hate it why does he respond that way 
it's such a voice it's such a bit he's like oh really lyrics too wow he's really talented jesus. guy like the jesus why does yeah. he say that? he's like jesus and then aaron of course like takes a big gulp of wine after that oh, he's like dear oh god. god she kind of just like laps off and goes it was pretty and keep in mind she's not making eye contact with a single person during this part she's not looking at the camera she's not looking at jack or aaron she's looking down at the fire like trying to think of what she's going to say next it was pretty obvious that it should be a duet because he's got such a low voice that it sounded really good sung down there in that register. God. Okay, so that's what she had said about William Bowery when she revealed who it was. When Folklore came out, we talked about her Instagram post and her letter. In the caption, she thanks everyone that worked on the album. You know, Jack, Aaron, Bon Iver. She thanks Lauren Sisk, Laura Sisk, um, whoever the audio engineer that works with Jack all the right. time is. Um, so yeah, she, you know how Taylor is. She credits everyone and every thing she was crediting herself for doing makeup and um styling the That's cardigan right. video you know she includes william bowery in that caption she says that william bowery co-wrote exile and betty this was the original story when folklore came out william mm-hmm. bowery co-wrote exile and betty william bowery had nothing to do with production at this time william bowery only wrote on two songs then of course she reveals in long pond who william bowery is she says it's joe alwyn december 2020 rolls around evermore is released this was about a month after long pond everyone at this point knows who william bowery is and then William Bowery is again credited for co-writing on Champagne Problems, Coney Island, and Evermore. Again, no producing credit. Another thing to keep in mind is that William Bowery is only credited on songs that Jack helped to produce. None of the stuff that Aaron worked on. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So if we think of it, if we think about how close Jack and Taylor are, this kind of makes sense if she is trying to cover something up for PR or a contract mm-hmm. or whatever it may be, bearding wise, mm-hmm. Jack would be the one to go to to get these credits added on because he probably doesn't mind kind of sharing credit with Joe even if it's not exactly real because he knows Taylor as like a real person they've been friends for so many years he understands her struggles with trying to kind of beard closet you know and I could also see her just not really wanting to include Aaron in all of that because why would she need to if Jack knows the background of everything so that's really interesting to note too and that includes the songs on Evermore so then (laughs) so then if you go into the U.S. Copyright Registry, and I did look this up again the other day to confirm that it is still this, the authorship for Betty in Exile, which would be who wrote it, hmm. reads Willem Bowery, not William Bowery. However, the copyright claimant is under William Bowery Music Publishing, so that when you search William Bowery, they still come up. But if you look at the actual authorship, it says Willem Bowery. I'm assuming this means that the, yeah, so the residuals would go to William Bowery Music music publishing and this makes it so that if you search william bowery exile betty come up right but the actual person who's listed is willem bowery a u.s citizen which you you cannot lie about do you think it's a drag queen willem do you know i I do know willem willem's one of my (laughs) favorite drag queens don't get me started (laughs) i actually i love willem i love willem so much but and willem is like a girl name quote-unquote really yeah that's why willem has the drag queen uses that name wait i literally never ever thought that willem was a woman's name i just assumed you know like bob the drag queen like lots of drag queens it's like like max yeah it's camp (laughs) no yeah i'm I'm pretty sure that Willem, at the very least, is a gender neutral name. Yeah, of course. Well, any name can be gender neutral. Right, exactly. (laughs) Or considered a gender neutral name, I should say. Yes. So the biggest piece of evidence for me here isn't even the Willem or whatever the 
the misspelling, but it's the fact that Willem Bowery is listed as a U.S. citizen, which Joe Owen is not. And you cannot lie on that. What? That's so weird, Madison. So this is clear cut, hard proof evidence from a government database that William slash Willem Bowery is not Joe Alwyn. Wow. That's bizarre. So wait, what are the Grammy records then? So the Grammy records, well, that's the thing, is once the Grammys rolled around, she, of course, thanked him in her speech. She said it was so much fun writing songs with Joe in quarantine, Uh whatever. But then, like you said, a couple months after the Grammys, he was suddenly added to the minimum requirement Mm. for him to have worked on songs from an album to get his own Grammy. Because if he only had writing credits on Betty and Exile, he would not have gotten his own Grammy. So they just added that he was like a producer? So you have to be credited on a third of the songs from an album to get your own Grammy. So yeah, they added him to be a producer in the other ones because you can't really say in retrospect that he helped write more songs than he did because she already talked about it so publicly on the two songs he helped write. But she can say, actually, he was there when we produced these and he added this random beat and he played this little melody. And so yeah, he does get writing credits and he's my boyfriend. So he gets a Grammy. I, that That's very weird. And another interesting thing which I actually didn't even write down in my notes, but there's an interview with Jack from not very long ago where he talks about how strange and corrupt producing and writing credits can get in the industry. And this was post that video. Yeah, that was, um, it was an interview he gave with like GQ or something. I don't remember what it is. Yeah, that interview was fascinating because he was like very upset, basically being like, yeah, people pretend like producers want to be writers and writers want to be producers. How could they credit him as a producer after the fact? It is so weird. And the only time that this has happened in history was with Beyonce. Um, She won a Grammy for her video, Brown Skin Girl and Mm. added Blue Ivy post the Grammy win to the credits so that Blue Ivy could get her own Grammy, which is kind of hilarious. As she Um, should. I'm very glad Beyonce did that. that. (laughs) Exactly. But then that's even more disappointing looking at Taylor as a fan and being like, you're doing this corrupt thing not because you want your Black daughter to have this prestigious award, but you're Mm. doing it so that your white partner that is your public partner anyway can get accolades for an album after you've worked so hard your whole career to own your own work and to be acknowledged for the writing that you do on your own and to not have all of your shit owned by a man or categorized by a man in any way. So it just felt like like three steps back from all of the like advocacy yeah. she's been doing for artists and for women in the industry in general. And like, it's embarrassing. You have said that Grammy Gay really led you to becoming to become a gayler. Why? Like, what about that arrangement screams that it must be like a beard to you? Because to me, this sounded like something way beyond a personal preference of her being like, I want my boyfriend to have a Grammy. If she wanted her boyfriend to have a Grammy, he would have been credited on a third of the album to begin with. Yes. And he wouldn't have used 
a, a pseudonym for his name it would have been like proud that she was writing songs with her boyfriend in quarantine i mean like even in the physical album booklets it's listed as william bowery for writing credits on two songs and that's it he's never listed as a producer nothing like that and the I fact that jack that. had that interview i know and the fact that jack had that interview where he was like yeah everyone just wants writing credits and they can get producing credits if they're just sitting in the room while we're producing the song they can they have an argument oh for that Wow, wow, and wow, not wow. to mention Aaron and Jack have never once tagged Joe Alwyn mentioned Joe yeah. Alwyn they always say William Bowery or just WB and even then sometimes they don't even mention William Bowery when they're talking about um like when they won the Grammy and stuff and when they're just reflecting on the album even the night that they won the Grammy there was a picture of Taylor Jack Aaron Laura and like a couple of other people that helped engineer the album and it was all of them celebrating the win and I think Taylor posted it. The caption was Folklorians or the Folklorian family. That's what she said. Yeah. And not a single Joe or William Bowery was to be seen. Why? Like, why didn't, why wouldn't he at least go to the Grammys with her on this album that they co-produced? I expected it to be quite honest, especially because prior to Grammygate, like I said, I kind of believed that her and Joe were a real loving relationship. And I was like, oh, that would be amazing if Joe would go with her. And, you know, since he was credited for writing a couple songs, and helped her allegedly that would be such a cute moment for them as a couple to kind of be public because it is this accomplishment that they both got you know why wouldn't i know i keep saying the same things over and over again i'm such a broken record but like when you're in love with someone and they are as accomplished and impressive and talented as taylor swift and you've been lucky enough to be like able to work with them in such a close capacity why wouldn't you write something just a, a couple of sentences post yeah. it on make it make your own instagram post or just post it on a story post it on twitter i don't care what you do just something tag him <laughs> something that's like no one I'm has so tagged grateful. this man once I'm it's so confusing and like what it really comes down to for me about whether or not they're a beard relationship or if they're like really truly in love it's like if they are really truly in love they have a different understanding of what it means to be in love than I do or I could ever fathom because yeah. The lack of su public support and affection that they show to each other truly does not resonate with me. I on mean, at any this point, level. Jack and Aaron are more loving partners to Taylor Swift from my perspective than yeah, Joe. absolutely. They support her so much in everything, every anniversary of folklore and the way that they post about it and talk about her and just everything. The way that they like talk about her even when she's not there in their own separate interviews and think um, of all for sweet, sweet like girlfriends that post on their story about how proud they are of her I mean mm. literally who was it was it Halsey who was like it was so I know how much this album meant and like I was so proud of you for writing this about folklore like all I want is like one little story that's like I feel so blessed to be able to work with Taylor like from Joe it's just one little thing you know what <laughs> and then I agree and then I tell myself you know it's not my business and maybe they don't want to show public support and maybe that's just how their relationship is and there's a lot of support in private and whatever yeah. it may be but then I think about like 
Grammy gate. And then I also think about Sean Mendez in that weird interview where they asked him about Joel when he said he looks like a villain. He looks like he could switch up at any minute. And it makes me think that maybe they aren't even on good terms anymore. I know we talked yeah. about at the beginning them being yeah. these like companions and partners for life. And maybe at some point they were. But since Grammy gate, all I can see is Joe as a villain the same way that Sean described him. Me too. Because I'm just like, all of a sudden you're going to sweep in and get accolades for your partner who you have never acknowledged once and yeah. you're gonna not say a word about it not thank her or any of the team involved in making the album supposedly with you not thank the grammys this institution of like one of the most prestigious awards you've ever won in your career that doesn't even have to do with acting which is your specialty you know it makes me see joe as such a fucking asshole and as much as i don't want to see him as that because he is supposedly from what we know a big part of taylor's life it this made me question so much of that for that reason yeah and just no acknowledgement of it and then you asked why he wouldn't be credited until afterwards I think yeah and another thing I want to know is if he would have been credited on a third of folklore the Grammy requirements from the get-go and she lost album of the year then she would have been giving accolades to Joe for no good damn reason and it would have been for nothing and Joe would have had all these credits for her to not even win the prize that she loves so much which is she loves these awards she loves mm -hmm. the Grammy she's very passionate about winning these Grammys mm -hmm. and impressing the Grammy committee for whatever reason. Calvin Harris has talked about how he bearded in order to win a Grammy and to impress uh -huh. the Grammy committee. So it really makes me think that she was just like, I won't credit him if I don't have to. And yeah. maybe she had to as a requirement for her Grammy, or maybe she had to as a requirement for their contract. If she won, he had to share that award with her, especially because of COVID that was so unpredictable. Maybe their contract included something where he had to earn a prestigious award like that and he didn't have the chance to because Phil went on hot for all actors wow. so maybe this was the only chance that she would get for him to get an award during their contract supposedly if they are bearding does that make yeah, sense we, i mean yeah i mean it does i just it it's so hard that we really don't know at all like and that's the nature of these agreements is that like i feel like we truly might never find out um yeah. like why these decisions were made i mean i can make peace with that because like it really all goes back to me it's like her music really does speak for itself it's really exactly. like all the sort of explanations and all of the added layers that our heterosexist world makes us add to them and all of the sort of garbage she has to wade through being in the public eye but I mean then you come to these songs and they speak truth to things that are so ineffable and so above the narratives that we're hearing and I just have to like cling to those you know because like in her most candid moments you see girls supporting her and her supporting women queer artists loving her and her loving queer artists and those sort of things like those like sacred moments to borrow a phrase like those are so real and they really rise above all of this insane bullshit that you're describing exactly and that's why she always goes back to in interviews and stuff she's like it's always about the writing it always comes down to the writing and my yeah. fans know that the lyrics is where my true story is and it's so true because it really does and just to end on a little bit of a more positive note people are really talking about or at least Gaylers are talking about their nervousness surrounding Evermore possibly winning the Grammy this year and Joe getting his 
his own Grammy. But let's keep in mind, Joe, again, is only credited for writing on three songs on Evermore, which would not qualify him to get his own Grammy, which is what we assumed on Folklore 2. And maybe she could add producing credits later on for Evermore 2 if she wins. I really hope she wouldn't pull that stunt again. I don't um, think she would. I doubt that she would. would. Be... It would be ridiculous. So just to ease everyone's mind, if she does win the Grammy for Evermore, it will be only hers, not Joe's. And I also wanted to point out the lyric in Willow. There was one prize I'd cheat to win. And quite literally, that prize was probably the Grammys because we yeah. all saw in Miss Americana how distraught she was when she didn't win for reputation or even get nominated. Also, just to acknowledge, Gaylers have all of their own little theories about who William Bowery is, aside yeah. from Joe. A lot of people say that it's Taylor herself. I mm-hmm. kind of subscribe to that theory a lot. Me too. Because I want to believe too. that she did this all on her own. And then also that it's Brandy Carlisle is a great theory. People <laughs> theorize <you>. about it. <laughs> people you theorize it about first. it. No, exactly. That's a really fantastic theory. I'm going to look into it. Also about it being like a woman that she's with, like the people that they usually theorize about her being with. And then people say that it's even Austin Swift because he has released music under pseudonyms before because he doesn't like being associated with Taylor with his music. He wants it to kind of be his own thing. And that would make sense why he was um, producer on Long Pond Sessions. Just to throw out a few of the theories in case anyone needed to ease their mind of it being someone else um (laughs) i also wanted to mention that in the babe music video which she produced with little big town like years and years ago there's a scene in that video where the wife is reading a letter from her husband and the husband signs his name at the bottom as William. So That is so odd. So this pseudonym has been kind of used for her for a really long time. And Bowery comes from New York. There's the Bowery Hotel, the Bowery Ballroom, both places that her and Joe were seen together. Or not together. They were actually in separate groups, but they were at the Kings of Leon concert. It's supposedly one of the times they met. Um, She's been seen at the Bowery Hotel with a lot of people, though. So we don't know. Yeah, I mean, the Bowery Hotel is like one of her favorite spots in New York. Which also makes me think it could be Taylor because she loves the Bowery and she maybe she pulled William from the babies video while she was doing the red re-recordings and she was like oh this works William and then I'll just use Bowery because you know New York yeah I mean I my favorite theory that like the reason I think that William Bowery is Taylor because it's like wouldn't whoever William Bowery is speak up like wouldn't they wouldn't that be such a hard like third moving piece to take care of like having to keep one person silent and then like have another person take on the identity whereas if it's just Taylor and being like why don't we just make up another person and maybe that that makes me like Joe a little bit actually because Joe just shuts up and sits in the background and he's (laughs) like yeah you guys can assume what she said in Long Pond is true but I'm not gonna say shit about it because it actually wasn't me yeah I, I I hope they're not on bad terms because God, what a like grim reality to have to be pretending to be with someone that you like don't even love, you don't even like, you know? Yeah. Um, like that would be devastating. And I don't want to believe that. So that's why I think that William Bowery is Taylor because it's like, why would Joe lie? Like, why would Joe actively be like, yep, I was there? Like, no, Taylor will just spin these little webs because like she understands what she needs to do uh to be like America's pop princess and then joe's just like yeah okay sweetie like all right that's fine Uh, uh, i'll see you in a few months 
<laughs> no, seriously. Um, we are planning on doing an Evermore episode around the time of the Grammys as well. I know we got a lot mm-hmm. of requests for that, actually, when yeah. we asked for this episode. And oh my God, I'm so excited to talk about Evermore. That is my favorite album yeah. by her. Um, yeah, so we're super excited to talk about Evermore. Thank you guys so much for listening. We have a lot of exciting things coming up in the new year. And as always, I'm just so grateful that you all like listening to us. Hopefully you feel validated by at least one of the things that we said today. And you know what? I've gotten so many comments of people being like, I just feel so validated. Like that's the word people always mm-hmm. use. And I'm like, that's literally been our only goal this whole time. That's our mission. Yes. To feel make you feel validated. So good. <laughs> For our next episode. So we're going to delve deep into the literary references in Taylor's work. And we'll be focusing on Evermore, Emily Dickinson's uh, influence on it, the callbacks to Dickinson. But we'll also be bringing up other literary references that she's made. Um, For example, I've seen a lot of references to The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, another queer poet from history. Sappho, her references to The Secret Garden, Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland. We all know the classic ones but kind of looking at them and why they relate to queerness kind of how we looked at the little mermaid and the archer and how it actually related to queerness and we had never even thought about it I feel like we could talk a little bit too about portrait of a lady on fire while we're at it yes just a tad we could touch on it but I think evermore is a very is very much portrait of a lady on fire so exactly and it's fitting because Ivy's going to be playing in Dickinson this month so I believe it'll be playing before we release that episode but Mm. we do want to want to bring up all the references aside from her just like signing off on it being used for Dickinson is kind of confirmation that Ivy is very much a Dickinson story yeah between Ivy and the namesake of Evermore oh gosh I'm really excited to do that maybe the question this month can be what are some of your favorite Taylor literary references yeah maybe we're missing some um yes if you guys have noticed any that we didn't just mention then please do let us know and we can do our little research into it next episode I can imagine is going to be a really big one with a lot of research and uh, I mean as I've said a million times your analysis of of queer history is really one of my favorites and one of the reasons why I'm so excited to work with you so I'm really excited for next week's months next time's episode yeah yeah (laughs) just the next episode All right. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please let us know if there's any literary references we missed that we can include in the next episode. And thank you, Jack Antonoff, for being the ultimate Gaylor ally. We love you. We love you, Jack Antonoff. Thank you. Okay, bye. (laughs) Bye.